This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bosch eBike Systems, maker of outstanding motors, displays, and rechargeable batteries that work seamlessly with the most reputable electric bike brands in the world. Do we have our lunches? Yes. Do we have our backpacks? Yes. Are we wearing helmets? Yes. Okay, let's go. This is the energetic sound of my morning when I take my kids to the school bus stop in a cargo bike outfitted with a Bosch e-bike system. All right. That purring sound you hear is my favorite part. Bosch crafts extremely efficient motors, which means they don't have to be screaming at really high wattages to help you up steep hills. The motor is also positioned where it should be, directly between the pedals. That keeps your center of gravity low. It makes for a more natural and balanced ride. Yeah, it really is as fun as it sounds. Bosch's pedal assist technology has sensors that literally read your movement a thousand times a second. The result is a remarkably responsive motor that gives you the output you want exactly when you need it. On a cargo bike, that means low-end torque to get me going right off the line at a stop sign. Here we go. But if you're rolling on an e-road bike, Bosch motors are specially metered to kick in the strongest when you're climbing or pedaling at high speeds on the flats. If you've never ridden an e-bike, or you haven't tried the latest generation of amazing options, now's the time. I've been riding electric bikes for more than a decade, and everything about them has gotten so much better. Learn why Bosch's technology and expertise make them the leading supplier for electric bike systems at Bosch-ebike.com. That's B-O-S-C-H-ebike.com. Can we do it again? From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. I wanted to see what it was like to be mugged by a monkey. This is intrepid author Mary Roach, and she's not kidding about the monkey. I write nonfiction books, most recently a book called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary has published a number of memorable stories for Outside Magazine over the years including my personal favorite, about shrinking human heads. She is known for her humorous deep dives into obscure topics and her extremely concise book titles. Perhaps you've heard of some of them. Stiff, which offers a body of evidence about cadavers. Gulp, in which she explores our digestive system. And Bonk, about sex. To report her new book, Fuzz, she spent a lot of time seeking out places where animals have a habit of breaking human laws. On a trip to northern India, she devised a plan to entrap some especially brash macaque monkeys into robbing her. So I'm like, I head up with a bag of bananas. I know it's gonna, I'm gonna get mugged. But I also wanted to see them up close. I mean, that, people love to be up close to animals. I mean, that's the horrible irony is that so often these animals' deaths are born out of this love that we have and this desire to be close to them and we can't seem to stop ourselves. For today's episode, outside podcast producer and former park ranger, Marin Larson, puts her flat hat back on to talk to Mary about what happens when the planet's fuzzier creatures refuse to follow the rules. 
The summer after college, I was a trailhead ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, where I spent most of my time in a weird outfit telling tourists to stop trying to pet wild animals. There was the guy who was determined to feed his trail mix to the chipmunks until I told him that they can carry rabies. And the person who showed us an up-close-and-personal picture he'd snapped of a huge elk just seconds before it charged him. Or the family who left an entire roasted chicken out at their campsite because they wanted to see a bear. So when I called up Mary to talk about her book, we quickly bonded over our shared history of wildlife encounters in small Colorado mountain towns. Tell me how you ended up in Aspen, lurking around near trash containers at like 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Well, I had been speaking with this researcher named Stuart Breck. He's the guy who wrote the paper, literally wrote the paper on bears breaking into minivans in Yosemite. He had already completed some studies in Aspen and a couple of other places in Colorado. And I said, would you go back there with me? Just, I've got to see a bear in action. So I said, can we set the alarms for 3.30 or 3 in the morning and just see what's going on? And I was thinking, wow, what are the odds on any given night that you're going to find a bear when you want to see a bear? That's not easy to do. But in Aspen, it is. (laughs) Like we pulled up to this area where there's a row of restaurants. And we looked down this alley and there's a big white trash bag ripped open, stuff spilling out. Like we obviously surprised a bear in the middle of its uh, depredations, as they say. And uh, I was like, oh, we missed it. He goes, let's just pull over here. It'll be back. And within three minutes, the bear comes lumbering back and sort of looks at us and kind of thinks, okay, they don't seem like a threat, and goes back to its, I have to say, really tasty-looking food scraps. But while Mary was delighted to see this bear appear as if on command, her companion was less enthused to witness the animal tearing into a trash bag that had been improperly secured by restaurant workers. Stuart Breck is a really soft-spoken, you know, not, you don't see him gesturing wildly or telling stories. He's a pretty mellow guy, but he sees the bag... And he's like, really? Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) He is just apoplectic because so much money and so much effort has gone into trying to get people to understand the consequences here. And by consequences, she means for the bears, not for the humans. And that's because bears' alleged crimes don't often stop at swiping leftovers. In fact, that's usually just the start. Mary says that breaking into garbage bins is a gateway drug for breaking into houses. You get a bear that's habituated to humans and human food, um, the bear is going to keep coming back. And at a certain point, a human's going to get injured one way or another. Not like an attack, but just uh, surprise the bear. The bear runs past him, swipes at him, which had happened a couple weeks before I got there. And that bear's going to get put down, destroyed, killed. Bears, once they have a record of human encounters, tend to have high rates of recidivism. And while Aspen has fairly low rates of human-on-human crime, it's a hot spot for ursine malfeasance. I was only in Aspen a couple days, and I was thinking, with my job, I'm always showing up somewhere and wanting something to happen, like, on cue, which is ridiculous. And I thought, this is not going to be a bear break-in today. But, in fact, Colorado Parks and Wildlife guy, Curtis Tesh, was called out. Stuart and I went along with him in his truck way up into the hills. This is a very nice neighborhood. Big house, kind of like spills down the hill, three layers, multiple decks. 
The only person there at the time is the caretaker of the house. The family was out of town. So we show up and she takes us down to the bottom deck, which goes into a bedroom. The screen door is just pushed in. And amazingly, the white kind of cushy, not shag, but very lush carpeting. There's no, no footprints, no tracks. It's a very clean bear. And the bear goes up the stairs to the kitchen, doesn't knock over anything on the way, kind of remarkable, gets to the kitchen and then opens up the refrigerator. And that's when it gets a bit messy. There is uh, cottage cheese, ice cream containers, honey jar broken. (laughs) The honey was classic, just classic. Essentially, bears are going to be bears. This is one of Mary's big points in Fuzz. Animals are not breaking our laws just to spite us or because they're hardened criminals. They're doing it because, shocking as this may seem to some humans, our rules don't apply to them. If a hungry bear whose historic berry foraging habitat has been slowly eroded by multi-story mountainside homes learns that those homes, too, are sources of food, it will take up trespassing. And yet, the fact that the bear has no idea it's doing something it shouldn't doesn't stop us from punishing it. Though, as Mary points out, in many jurisdictions, the first step is to get the animal away from the crime scene and to give it another chance. Just take them out, put them back in the wilderness, and hope that they don't return. Relocation is often plan A, but it's far from a sure bet. Bears are extremely good at finding their way back. They've been known to travel more than 100 miles and swim large distances in order to return to their home turf. It sometimes works with a, with a sub-adult, you know, a younger bear for whom it hasn't really become a habit. So if you get to a bear early on in its criminal career, and I'm using quotes around criminal because they're just bears being bears, But if it's a young bear, sometimes that will work to take them to a far enough off place. But adult bears aren't as easy to uproot. And when they find their way back, they fall into their tried and true methods for sourcing food, which now includes stealing it from humans. This almost inevitable escalation is what broke through the calm, collected exterior of Mary's nighttime tour guide in that Aspen alleyway. It wasn't just the wasted money and resources that had gone into securing trash and educating the locals— but the devastating consequences for the bear caught in the middle. Stuart Brex is like pounding his head against the wall, like, come on, people. A bear that is considered a threat to human safety is a bear that's going to be put down. So while it's humorous to picture a bear breaking into a fancy ski town chalet to discover honey, a la Winnie the Pooh, the story likely won't have a happy ending for our unwitting criminal. I did feel very, very, very sad in Aspen for those bears that I saw because I knew their likely fate. That made me that made me almost cry. These poor guys, they don't know. They're just like, hey, there's some good food down here. Come with me. You know, they don't know. And I was like, these guys, within a year or two, they're going to be gone. It's pretty likely. Yeah, trying to explain to people that, like, they would joke, like, well, what if I... I want to see a bear. Like, I'll leave I'll leave my groceries out because I want to see a bear. I'm like, well, if you see a bear and it's in your camp, then we have to kill the bear. Right. And that changes, you know, the tone of someone's vacation pretty quickly. They're so, like, beloved, a lot of these animals, like penguins and bears, and we anthropomorphize them to such a great extent mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it's pretty gutting when you talk about the consequences of, like, getting to see those animals often those the consequences are not good for the animal. I know. 
The animals may be doing the time, but really it's us humans who have done the crime. In Aspen, we've done so by neglecting to dispose of our waste properly and destroying the bear's natural habitat. But in other places, we've made far more calculated choices that have turned animals into delinquents. We do create a lot of our own problems, that's for sure. We really do. Especially when you look at some of the efforts that have been made to control an invasive species by bringing in another species, which then becomes even more (laughs) invasive, you know, like in New Zealand with the rabbits that were brought in to make the landscape look more familiar to what they had in Europe or wherever they're coming from. That story coming up after a short break. At the top of the episode, we learned about Bosch e-bike systems and why they are the leading supplier of motors, displays, and rechargeable batteries for the most reputable electric bike brands in the world. And now, we're going to hear about frozen yogurt. I'll have a cake batter with the raspberry and pomegranate tart, please, and with nuts to top it. Apparently, that's delicious if you're 12 years old and halfway through a day-long electric bike ride with your family. My lucky boy was borrowing an adult e-bike with a Bosch Performance Line Sport Motor, a new Class 3 motor that provides pedal-assist power up to 28 miles per hour. They're ideal for longer trips and making a speedy run to the Froyo shop that's way on the other side of town. Cake batter with cookie dough and... Today's e-bikes are opening up possibilities like this to all kinds of riders. People are leaving their cars in the driveway to explore their local parks and greenways in a whole new way. And also, turning regular errands into impromptu adventures. Like that time last week, when my younger two boys and I decided to take our cargo bike on that dirt trail that eventually gets us to the grocery store. Nice! She's probably just going to freestyle down. Others are extending the range on touring odysseys. E-mountain bikers are ditching the shuttle ride to the tops of trails because they can roll there on their own. Bosch's mid-drive motor systems work synergistically with a bike's gears, so they are extremely efficient and can take you so much farther on a single charge. Brands like Trek, Cannondale, Turn, Electra, and Canyon choose Bosch e-bike systems because they are reliable and make all kinds of e-bikes, from gravel to hybrid to road, lighter, easier to handle, and more fun to ride. Find a Bosch e-bike dealer near you and learn why so many riders trust Bosch to help them stay fit, save money, and reduce their carbon footprint at Bosch-ebike.com. That's B-O-S-C-H-ebike.com. In her new book, Fuzz, author Mary Roach reports on the particularly confounding case of humans wreaking havoc in the animal kingdom that has played out in New Zealand over the last 150 years. The ecologically unique group of islands is home to a plethora of native fauna, including reptiles, frogs, and several species of flightless birds, like the kiwi. It was in this habitat, surrounded by creatures they'd never seen before, that some European colonists thought importing six harmless little rabbits would make the place feel a little bit more homey. It always starts with two rabbits. Well, I guess it started with six in this case. But yeah, a very, a, a very small, small number were originally brought in. And then the rabbits, you know, they do what rabbits do. They multiply. And rabbits are just eating all the, the crops and the, the grazing land uh, is just barren. Imagine a landscape raised by Peter Rabbit and his hordes of irresponsibly imported relatives, and it makes you kind of want to sympathize with Mr. McGregor. But fear not. 
the colonists thought of an astoundingly ill-fated solution. So they're like, I know, let's ship in some stoats. <laughs> so, you know, they ship in weasels and stoats and ferrets and also some feral cats. So, you know, those animals look around, they go, yeah, those rabbits, they taste okay, but these bird eggs that are just lying on the ground, because these are flightless birds, these bird eggs are pretty excellent, and these little tiny birds hopping around that never fly away. Those vulnerable birds and their extra vulnerable eggs never had a natural predator before. And now they had four, freshly imported from Europe. These days, about 25 million native New Zealand birds are killed by non-native predators every year. It's kind of like there was an old lady who swallowed a fly, you know, all the way down the line. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're not very good at this. By we, she means humans. And by this, she means fixing our own mistakes. There's people in the book who are really doing good work and making smart decisions and trying to come at it from the perspective of changing human behavior and also of preventing conflicts before they happen. Because once they start to happen, it's really tough to change the mindset and behavior of a species. Despite our collectively disastrous track record, humans continue to try to play God when it comes to wild animals. In New Zealand, a monumental effort to right past wrongs is underway. A program called Predator-Free New Zealand 2050. So that is uh, a program that seeks to eradicate the three most damaging invasive species by the year 2050. And those species are rats, possums, and stoats. Because they are driving the native flightless birds in particular, but also uh, a lot of reptiles species, uh, to extinction. This program, the country's attempt to essentially prosecute these imported predators for animal genocide, is what originally brought Mary to New Zealand. It aims to completely eliminate the target pests, mostly through the use of quick-killing traps, in just a few decades. On Mary's trip, one of her first stops was a beach populated by birds the predator-free program is trying to save. Yellow-eyed penguins are, uh, there's only a few thousand left, and, and they're extraordinary. They're, they look like they have this sort of Flash Gordon lightning streak going back from their eyes, and they look like they're wearing pink go-go boots. They're a really cool-looking bird. And they don't live in a colony like a lot of penguins. They nest in the coastal tussock, you know, the grasses and stuff. They're slow on land. They're kind of dun, 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 dun. They're kind of plodding along. <laughs> they're easy to catch if you're a feral cat or a stoat. Looking at those highly photogenic penguins on that beach, Mary understood why Kiwis have gone to such lengths to save them. But when she was touring a trap testing facility later on in her visit, she came face to face with one of the bird's mortal enemies, the common brushtail possum. They're not like our possums in the States. They're really kind of fuzzy and cute. They have a little flat face, like kind of big eyes. And you look at them, you're like, oh, like, who are we to say... Yes to the penguins, no to the possums. I don't know. It, it's a very, you know, it was very easy for me just having seen the penguins, which I did when I first arrived. It's easy to think, yes, by all means, do what it takes to save this species. But then you go and spend time with the poor possums that are like, what did we ever do to you? I mean, it's just a hard... You know, to pit one, the survival of one species against another. So while the predator-free program may be a well-intentioned attempt to undo the damage we've already caused, it too is born from a human pull to alter our surroundings. It's this kind of desire to, to not adapt to your new home and just 
make it look just exactly like you want it to, and then to keep it that way over time. And, and landscapes are always evolving. The shift in animal populations is ever-changing. You know, one species will spike and then something else will happen that makes it not ideal for that species and they'll the numbers will decline, something else will thrive. So, you know, to try to lock it in in this one slice of time is a kind of a surreal effort. After all of her research, Mary still isn't sure that there is one best approach for how we deal with animals that are breaking human laws. I try to understand it from both sides. I know if if your livelihood depends on growing crops or raising livestock, you're going to be pretty pissed at these animals. I see that even in my, my next door neighbors are animal lovers. However, they also plant a garden and have fruit trees and they really, really hate the squirrels and they trap them and they take them and they let them go somewhere else. I do understand how maddening it could be. I, I only can have succulents that is like cacti on the back deck because anything else, the little bastards come. These are squirrels. I love them, but they just come and dig it up. I give up. I just started growing spiny things. <laughs> That's the only thing they won't destroy. Can't reason with them. God knows I've tried. It's like, at what point do we accept that something that hasn't always been in a place is here to stay? Right. And we should stop trying to change it. I don't know what that answer is. And I guess it's up to the New Zealand people. And that's what they've agreed on. The researcher I visited with was saying, the costs of doing this on the whole island or two islands uh, are prohibitive. He didn't feel you could ever do it. All you can do is hope that you can educate people. And and some people are doing a really great job. That woman, uh, they call they call her the bear bitch because she's she's very very uh, thorough uh, with fining uh, fining people for violating the uh, bear restraint container laws. One one thing she did was she went around to all the restaurants and she had a presentation, not for the owners who already know they're supposed to lock up their garbage, but for the staff, the people who don't necessarily know the fate of a bear. Uh, They're just, they're in a hurry. They throw their trash, the trash bag in. They don't lock it up. They're like, eh, I can't be bothered. I'm in a hurry. I'm under a lot of pressure tonight. Or I don't care because I don't know what's going to happen to the bear. So she does these presentations and it's been really effective. I mean, uh, she's a success story. But even the people who know the most about animal behavior sometimes make mistakes. Stuart, the guy who wrote the paper on bears breaking into not just minivans, other cars as well. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and he said, oh, I have something to tell you. He said, you won't believe this? My car got broken into. I left a peach in the car. I can't believe it. I left a peach in the car. (gasps) A bear broke into the car of the guy who is the expert on bears breaking into cars. That has to be the clearest indicator that wherever people and wild animals come into close contact, things will go wrong, at least some of the time. But educating ourselves about these interactions can make a big difference. For Mary's part, writing Fuzz has most definitely changed her approach to her local wildlife. I've been working on this book about people and wild animals, and rats are, for better or worse, wild animals. And I've been sort of talking the talk, right? So I'm sitting out on on our deck and I'm reading, and I look up and it's like four in the afternoon. And a rat runs across the end of the deck. I'm like, holy crap, that's a rat. 
and I immediately think, gotta go to the hardware store, gotta get a trap, a snap trap, humane, you know, very quick death. But then I stopped, I went, oh yes, so what? So what? It's a roof rat. And I went sort of went about my business and I saw I saw it like a few days later. I was walking down the steps and he's coming down a branch and we sort of look at each other. And he's they're roof rats. They're not like sewer rats. They're essentially a squirrel with a bald tail. So if you don't see the tail and you're looking at him straight on, it's just a it's a squirrel basically. It's really no different. Uh, they both want to get into your attic and make a nest and have babies. Uh, so I thought, okay, I can coexist with this guy. And I still see that rat around, and I'm really glad I didn't set a trap. You know, it's like, oh, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> How's your day going? It's like he's, you know, eating, probably eating the neighbor's fruit off her trees. Yeah. He's just part of the neighborhood now. He's part of the neighborhood. Exactly. And this brings us back to where we started this episode in northern India, where many neighborhoods are overrun with marauding monkeys. This one woman told me about monkeys breaking into the hospital, basically. And the monkeys, the macaques, would run in, and if somebody's on a glucose you know, uh, feeding line, they would yank it out of the person's arm and suck on the glucose. I mean, they're, they're so clever and, and um, cocky. To really understand what was going on, Mary felt that she had to experience one of these macaque attacks herself. So I thought, well, I'm just going to walk along this trail with a bag of bananas and see what happens. So um, that's what I did. I tried to get her to describe what happened, but she says for that, you'll just have to read the book. I'll let the reader enjoy the, the story. That was author Mary Roach speaking with outside podcast producer Marin Larson. Mary's new book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. You can purchase it through the links on her website, maryroach.net. This episode was brought to you by Bosch e-bike systems, maker of outstanding motors, displays, and rechargeable batteries that work seamlessly with the most reputable electric bike brands in the world. Learn more at Bosch.com. That's B-O-S-C-H dot com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at OutsideOnline.com slash Outside P-L-U-S. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OutsidePod. That's OutsidePod, all lowercase.